in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Lizzie Haynes, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, the podcast where we watch movies and then talk about them. I am your host, not Lizzie Haynes, Bad Russell, joining me today. I am your host, Chad Robinson. Joining me today is my co-host, Lizzie Haynes. How are you tonight, Lizzie? I am good. I'm really, really excited to talk about this movie. This is an oldie, but a goodie for me. Excellent. Excellent. And here's our guest. We have a crossover guest who suggested this movie for us. His name is Jacob Coakley from the Clue Dunnett podcast. Jacob, tell us about you. Tell us about your podcast. Sure. Hi, I'm Jacob. And Chad, Lizzie, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. You guys have a fun podcast and I love it. So I'm happy to be on here talking about Roger Rabbit. Um, On my podcast, I've seen Roger Rabbit, so it kind of ruined it for my podcast. But on our podcast, my wife and I, Jessica, we watch TV mysteries and we try to guess who done it before the first commercial break. So as soon as there's a body, as soon as there's a crime, we guess. And, uh, And sometimes we're even right. (laughs) <laughs> I love that. That is so fun. Yes. Lizzie is the target demographic here, the suburban mom. She's like, ah, Indeed, true crime. I am. I am. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have to say, like, true crime, like, it's it's absolutely fake crime. We can't do the true. We, like, we're, <laughs> we'll, we'll just, we'll keep it fake. We'll keep it light. And there we go. But yes, but crime all the way. There you go. And you mentioned it tonight. We are going to be doing, uh, I'll call it an animated movie. It is a hybrid in Roger Rabbit. But Jacob, we'll start with you, our warm-up questions. What's Hit a live, live-action movie that you want animation added to? Uh, this is so much fun. Because, well, the thing about this is that any movie these days has so much animation added to it for CGI. So I would like to see something like My Dinner with Andre with like <laughs> animation added to it. Like, let's see My Dinner with Andre with like penguin waiters coming and bringing them things or something like that. Or like Uncle Vanya, where like the elephants are out in the like Russian steppes bailing hay. We covered at My Dinner with Andre on this podcast. <laughs> Lizzie was on a, it was an interesting one. Yeah, the quail, animated quail. See? Yes, yes. <laughs> Lizzie, what are you th- tossing animation into? I think this is really hard. I have such a hard time using my imagination in these moments because I will think of a movie and like just that doesn't have any animation in it. To your point, Jacob, I mean, the one so many do now, but I went with Hocus Pocus. I feel like that's just oh. a classic movie for me, especially like as a kid. And then there's the nostalgia factor, and it's so silly and goofy. And I think that animation would have been super appropriate and fun, kind of blended in. Yes, that's good choice. Good choice. Thanks. Okay, I like it. I am not necessarily going to choose animation, but I have long since held the opinion if you put the Muppets in any movie, yes. it makes that movie better. Put yes. them in The Godfather, you've got a better movie. Just What was the movie where they did 
they did a Muppets hard-boiled comedy. Um, it was some, oh, now I'm going to have to, I'll think of it like halfway through the podcast. I'll interrupt what somebody's <laughs> saying and then I'll come up with this. But yes, there was a, there was like a hard-boiled, sexy Muppet. It didn't have any of the Muppets, but it was that idea. I'll come up with it and I'll interrupt. All right. All right. <laughs> well, on that Perfect. thought, that's, that's going to linger in my head, sexy Muppets. Uh, <laughs> Jacob, what's the last movie you saw? It doesn't have to be in theater. The last movie I saw, as I f- frantically Google, the last movie I saw was John Wick 3. Okay. All yes. right. Yeah. We went, we decided to cut, catch up on the John Wicks ahead of four. And unfortunately, I, this is going to give me branded a heretic by a lot of people. I was so bored. It's very long. It's so long. And after a while, I don't care how beautiful the fight is. It's just another fight. It's just more guns. And I was just like, I can't, I can't. I, so yeah, I got through it, but there were many breaks. I'm not going to roast you for that. It's, it's two hours and 40 some minutes long. Like it's, it's a long time and he gets shot a lot. So yes, it's the happy time murders. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Melissa McCarthy is in it. It's flipping hilarious. Very good. Lizzie, what's the last movie that you saw? I saw Exorcist Believer, the somewhat sequel of of The Exorcist. The siblings. Uh, Yes. It it was I've seen worse, but I've absolutely seen better. That's the best way to describe (laughs) it. I'm gonna copy that sentiment because I watched a movie called Onyx, the Fortuitous, and the Talisman of Souls. So that's a, too many words for a title. It, <laughs> yes, it's a horror comedy. It's actually really well done, but the main character is super irritating. Andrew Bowser is—he uh, does the main character. He's also the director. He's done this Onyx character for years. He's gotten a lot of mileage out of it. If you find that entertaining, you're going to enjoy the movie. Didn't work for me. So what does work for me is Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which is the movie we're going to talk about tonight. It is from 1988. It stars Bob Hoskins, Christopher Lloyd, Charles Fleischer, Stubby K, Joanna Cassidy. It has a budget of $70 million. This is the most expensive film produced in the 1980s. So it also has the longest on screen credits. There are a ton of hands in this movie. Was this really the most expensive movie of the 80s? It was. It was. At least no the idea. internet tells me that. And the internet never lies. <laughs> and it's never wrong. <laughs> no, no. Someone on the internet will tell me I'm wrong very shortly. Amount grossed. It grosses $156 million, So pretty good. Places number two in the box office, only behind Rain Man. And when- Which I didn't realize they came out in the same year. I had no, I thought when my brain, Rain Man came out like years later than this movie. I agree. Rain Man feels like a 90s movie. Yes. It yes. Absolutely, yes. Agreed. So it's, a, it's ahead of its time, apparently. But right behind it, another great movie that we have covered is Coming to America. So one, two, three. That's a great movie. Yeah. Yes. Uh, this Roger Rabbit gets a 7.7 from IMDb. And Rotten Tomatoes, the critics love this movie, 96%. And the audience wow, score, job. really high up there too, 85%. It wins four Academy Awards, which I did not know until I entered this, uh, this podcast to study for this. That's incredible. Best Film Editing, Arthur Schmidt. Best Sound Effects Editing from Charles Campbell and Lu- 
Lewis Edmond, Best Visual Effects, Ken Ralston, and Special Achievement Award for Richard Williams. It also gets three nominations, Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, Best Sound, Golden Globes it gets two, Best Motion Picture, and Best Actor. BAFTAs, it wins one, Best Visual Effects. Mm. Nominated for four others. It wins Kids' Choice Award for Favorite Movie. I don't know about that for a kids' movie. We'll get into this. Uh, Hugo Awards, it wins for Best Dramatic Presentation. Saturn Awards wins Best Vanity Fantasy, Best Director, Best Special Effects. Nominated for five, five others. People love this movie. This is just insane. So, Jacob... You shortlisted this movie. We picked it. Have you seen Who Framed Roger Rabbit before? If so, what was your expectation coming back to it now? So I've, I have seen this many times. Um, I saw it, originally saw it when it first came out in the theater. It was, I was just one of those kids who went to matinees all the time. So like me and my cousin would hop on a bus and go to the theater and we saw this then. And I remember, I distinctly remember it just absolutely blowing my mind just not so with it and partly because there's a scene when mickey mouse and bugs bunny are parachuting together next to uh next to and his name bob hoskins character eddie, yep, eddie. um and i just remember looking at being like how did they do this how <laughs> did they get mickey mouse and bugs bunny on screen at the same time so yeah it blew my mind i loved it fast forward many years and i was just like wait a minute like either somebody mentioned it to me or I read somewhere it was it was very clear that it was just like wait a minute this was this was a Chinatown knockoff or not knockoff necessarily but a kind of an homage and certainly like riffing off of that so I yeah. had to go back and watch it again and then I watched it again recently in the pandemic when uh, when my friends didn't believe me that it was like such in the vein of Chinatown. So I've seen it many times. Yeah. And it does, it still holds up. It was one of the reasons I was like, yeah, I, I can definitely talk about this one. Oh, great. Lizzie, how about you? Is this your first time visiting? No. So I've, this is an oldie for me. I remember watching this as a kid. I couldn't tell you how old I was. Definitely young, young enough to have been very, very afraid of Judge Doom. I specifically yes. remember having like legitimate fear of him that kind of still lingered a little bit in this rewatch. But I I loved it so much. I was just like you, Jacob. I like loved watching the cartoons and like all the little cameos and picking everybody out as a kid. Now rewatching it, that part is still really fun. But as an adult, I actually really enjoy the story. The storyline's really mm -hmm. rich as well. So it's it it holds up and it feels like a pioneer in a lot of ways of a movie at to be a, done in 1988 to have two different production companies come together like Disney and WB and to pair the animation with the live action. I mean, in so many ways, I mean, this movie just knocked it out of the park. Yeah. I'm just not going to blink for the rest of the podcast. See how that affects you. Oh my gosh. Stop. No. <laughs> Well, we can talk about this later on, and we probably will. But you're, you said you were still scared of him now, and like I don't blame you. Like yes. the way going, this was one of the things that occurred to me this time watching it through. Is like it was up for a cinematography award, and it's deserved. Like how they shoot him, and where they shoot him, and how they stage it all around him. Like it, like there's some amazing shots in there. It's great. Truly, like Christopher Lloyd is 
such a lovable, sweet actor in, in so many other movies. And it's amazing that he's so disarming in this one. And it's, yes. he does a fantastic job. Yeah. For me, I I don't have the same experience. I definitely didn't see this young. I feel like it would have scarred me pretty young. <laughs> but uh, I did see at least parts of it. I remembered one particular steamrolling scene very, mm. very well. That was, that was in my memory banks. But it was almost like, I don't know that I've ever done it start to finish. So this was a pretty fresh watch for me. I I have read a lot of things over the years of, hey, this is actually a pretty good crime noir movie in and of itself. So I was excited for that. That's a genre that particularly Brian Fry and Russell Guest, our, our other co-hosts, they really push those genres. They're, they're big fans. So we've gotten a lot of it over the years, and I've gotten exposed to that genre a lot more. I, I'm the horror guy. I'm the less subtle. Uh, I just want the stabby, stabby, <laughs> stabby, stabby jump scare. Yeah. yeah, don't don't give me the mystery unless the mystery is who who's going to get killed next. But yeah, this uh, I felt like it held up. I felt like it held up very, very well. Uh, in the in the most part, there are some things that are eh, particularly around Baby Herman that we can we can talk about. Sure, but yeah. Uh, for the most part, I feel like audiences today can enjoy it uh, just as well. And we are going to spoil this movie. It is a mystery movie, so you don't want that spoiled if you haven't seen it. <laughs> Put us on pause, check out Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and we'll be right back. The flops and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. So whether you're a brain, a jock, a valley girl, or a Jedi, we've got some 80s classics for you. Do these movies stand the test of time? Are we discovering something new? Is there an 80s movie we're finally watching for the first time? Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation. From the hits to the cult classics, we'll discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not-so-favorite movie moments, too. It's the All 80s Movies Podcast, now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening. And we're back. This is your last chance before we spoil this movie. If you haven't seen 1988's Who Framed Roger Rabbit, please check it out. If you have, Lizzie, catch us back up. All right. Eddie Valiant, a a noir-esque detective in Hollywood, is brought in by Toon executive R.K. Maroon. Maroon is in dire need of getting one of his star tunes, Roger Rabbit, to get out of his funk that's costing his production thousands of dollars. Maroon is convinced that Roger is dropping the ball due to his marital woes, and he asks Valiant if he can snoop on Roger's wife, Jessica Rabbit, and catch her in the act of an affair. Valiant, once a top tune detective, now carries an intense disdain for tunes after his brother and partner was mysteriously murdered by a tune with red eyes and a high-pitched voice. But Valiant needs the cash, and he goes to the club where he sees Jessica singing, at which he discovers that she is not only a rabbit, but a Gordon, excuse me, not only not a rabbit, but a gorgeous femme fatale who is seemingly having an affair with the owner of Toontown himself and owner of Acme Studios, Marvin Acme. Upon the revelation, Roger is devastated and storms out saying that he will be happy someday. The following day, Marvin Acme is found dead. Roger is the prime suspect. 
Valiant wants nothing to do with this, but is forced to get involved when he discovers that Acme did in fact have a will leaving Toontown to his beloved tunes, but the media and the authorities say otherwise. Valiant and Roger team up to see who is behind Acme's death and who had the most to gain. Meanwhile, Judge Doom is searching for Roger, his prime suspect, with his weasels and a new invention, Dip, a concoction that will kill Toons. Valiant is forced to work with Roger and a slew of Toons to ultimately discover that a company has bought out the public transportation and looks to buy Toontown, Cloverleaf, who has one sole stockholder, Judge Doom. He plans to wipe out all of Toontown and all of its residents and build a freeway. A final battle ensues where it would seem that Judge Doom has been defeated, where he, but he rises up to reveal red eyes and a high-pitched voice and confesses that he was the one that killed Eddie's brother. Valiant and Doom battle it out one last time. Doom is drenched in his own dip and destroyed. Roger and Jessica are safe and Acme's will is properly restored and read aloud that Toontown is is now owned by beloved Toons. Roger and Eddie depart as friends and find an appreciation for one another. And that's all, folks. Very, very very nice. Yeah, this is an absolute marvel of cameos that get brought in. There are 326 animators that work on this film. Wow. The total of 82,080 frames were drawn. And the animation director, Richard Williams, he estimates that there's 1 million drawings that were done for this movie. And this is still the only major film where you can find Warner Brothers properties and Disney properties together. Jacob, you mentioned that just one specific scene blew your mind and there was a lot of back and forth between disney and warner brothers mm-hmm. that we'll get into but who were you most excited to see appear on screen and is there anyone that you were sad wasn't didn't make an appearance in this film I, that's interesting because i think my answer would have changed through the years like when we when i first saw this i mean i had no idea who was gonna be there or who was not gonna be there i think what i would have if this movie were being made today and if i were seeing it today i would obviously i would like to see such people like pixar characters come into this as well and i think that would kind Ooh. of be a no brainer i like that but i what th- i think what would also be really interesting would be to bring in some manga characters especially like had they in the 80s like brought in over some like it was like battle of the planets or star like there was just a bunch of those like like for me at the time, weird and like Robotech, like bring in some manga characters and really have them stomping around and see what that would have done to this. I think that would be fun. I don't know that I was disappointed not to see anybody, but that would be interesting to bring in now, I think. Oh, okay. Not necessarily manga, but I could see a lot of people getting behind a Goku appearance. Right? (laughs) Yes. Lizzie, who were you looking forward to? Is, Is there someone you were missing too? My favorite scene as a kid, and it's changed now, but as a kid, I was absolutely obsessed with Looney Tunes. And so I was more excited to see like the Daffy Ducks and the Bugs Bunny, but particularly Tweety Bird. That was as a kid, like that part where he's like, one putty, one I like one putty tat, one two yeah. putty tat. When he like takes his fingers and, and he's like, oh, I ran out of putty. It was just, oh my gosh, it was like the cutest 
little scene. And I remember looking forward to that so much as a kid and watching it back now just had like a sweet nostalgia. Yeah. I, I think for me, probably my favorite scene involving tunes was the piano scene with Daffy Duck and mm. Donald Duck. I felt like it was so funny, like their humor together. I don't think I completely appreciated that as, as a kid. And so being able to see that was really, really fun this time around. And then who – I think maybe who was missing could have – I don't know. I think to maybe to your point of bringing in somebody new, you could do like the Powerpuff Girls or some kind oh. of like really cute, like super, maybe like the Marvel stupid, like Spider Man, and bring in those animated versions of of those characters. That maybe that could would, would have been fun. I like it. I like getting bubbles in there. Yes. Yeah. I I'm the same way. I was a big Looney Tunes fan, so for me that that was a bigger draw than the Disney characters for me getting to see everybody. But as for somebody that was left out, they are really trying to stick to a timeline here. So they're ignoring some characters. My- oh, Marvin the Martian. I am holding yes. a stuffed Marvin the Martian. He is my boy. He's actually not in very many Looney Tunes episodes. I found yeah. it stunningly low. It's yeah. only like two or three. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. But, He's a beloved character for me, yes. and he is yes. not in this movie. So I want a man. I don't care about anachronisms. They were really trying to keep uh, certain designs. There was a back and forth between Warner Brothers and Disney, and Disney's a little sneaky here. So Disney sent a Warner Brothers wanted the modern designs for their characters, and Disney said, "No, we want them timeline accurate. We want the older designs." And to trick Warner Brothers, they sent a copy of the film with modern designs. And Warner Brothers gives them the thumbs up. And Disney then goes and uses the old designs. So that's why Tweety looks a little different. Wow. My dogs. Yeah. I mean, it it made them money. And we do miss out on some uh, incredible would-be cameos. Tried to get Popeye. That would have been great. Tom and Jerry. Uh, Little Lulu. Casper and I am not familiar with the Terry Tunes characters. Yeah, that's a miss for me. But I guess that was a, that was a big seventies. I think, huh? I would have thought because I think Terry Tunes was. I don't think Terry Tunes was was Terry Tunes seventies. For some reason, I have it in my brain that Terry Tunes was like the twenties. But maybe I'm wrong on that. It yeah, maybe. I, I don't know. That's just off of the top of my head. I I don't know, but I just don't know those characters at all. Yeah. Popeye and Casper and Tom and Jerry are all all big misses. And Bob Hoskins, he said his son wouldn't talk to him for two weeks after seeing this movie. And Bob Hoskins could not figure out what was wrong. He finally asked his kid, like, hey, man, what's your problem? Why are you so mad at me? And his little boy, he was very young at the time, said, you met Bugs Bunny and you didn't let me meet him. <laughs> you were working with bugs and he was so upset That's over so that <laughs> so, so that is very sweet but it it makes me think like looney tunes aren't a thing for this generation right no my daughter weirdly got into it and she she loves tweety bird too like lizzie so she can go to youtube tv or whatever and just look up the best of tweety but 
now they're like LeBron James's sidekicks in Space Jam, and I hate everything about that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> I have to admit, I didn't see that. I didn't see that movie. I was really excited when they brought all the Looney Tunes to HBO Max or just Max now. But then recently this year, they like they took off more than half of them. Oh. So you're to your point, yeah, they're just they are just kind of fading away right now, and that is sad. Lizzie, are your kids? Do they do Looney Tunes? Do they? Wilder does. Wilder will watch it. My my two younger are three and two, so they're still like a little too young. It needs to have more stimulation in order for them to want to hang on. And uh, my three year old maybe, but we haven't introduced it to him. I love another character that I really loved was that gigantic furry red giant. I don't know what his name was but he always battled bugs yes um that's yes one of my uh one of my son's favorites because it's okay. kind of he's he's a boy after my own heart he likes the scary stuff so he likes that it's a little spooky and like the scary monster but it's definitely not his favorite he'll only watch it if his his papa my dad is is in town oh okay um, okay yeah we Belle is a big fan of Wiley e. Coyote as well. She yes. she likes the schemes there. But who didn't like this movie were the or, original audience. It went terribly. And the audience was comprised of primarily 18 and 19-year-olds. They hated it. Almost the entire audience walked out of the test screening. Wow. <laughs> Robert Zemeckis looked at it and he goes, I'm not changing anything. So good Good for him of sticking to his guns. But let me read this off because this is how Disney Plus classifies this movie. And this is not helpful. Mystery, film noir, comedy, crime, and parody. (laughs) This is rated PG with all of those things in mind. Wow, PG, huh? I'm surprised by that, actually. Yeah, the Gremlins influenced had not hit in 19... I mean, it was 1984... We get PG-13, thanks to Gremlins and Temple of Doom, but it it's not evenly applied. So who do you think this film is primarily for? Because we do have, we've got these lovable cartoons. It is PG. We've got some terrifying moments in this movie, particularly mm-hmm. from Judge Doom. So J- Jacob, who's your audience for this film? You saw it quite young. I did see it quite young. And this is the, th- like, I think this is one of those movies that don't really exist anymore, which is like, this is a four, this is a true four quadrant movie. Like you can bring kids to it, but it's not a kid's movie. You kind of do need an adult there just to give them a little bit of reassurance during these scary parts of it. But there are also jokes that like, there are jokes that are going to go right over kids' heads oh, yeah. in that, you know what I mean? Like they're, they're, like the the whole booby trap joke, I am sure, just like parents were laughing and kids were like, what? I don't understand. Is You'll there get a there. rabbit in your pants or yeah. you're just happy to see me? Yes. Yes. So I do. I think I think it's one of those, like this was, this was meant to have a little bit of everything for everybody. And that that's kind of where I would go with it. It's such a cliche. Everybody can go see it. But I, Second in the box office that year. I think everybody did, and they could. So it's a darker Shrek for you. Yeah, 100%. 100%. It's just like, yeah. I think we – so, Chad, you and I just did the movie Election with Laura, and 
when talking about who it's for because it's a movie that's based in high school. We kind of mentioned that I think much like the the movie Waiting where it's a movie that's kind of meant for people who have worked in the restaurant industry, kind of same for election where it's it's more meant for people who have already experienced high school, not people who are still in high school. I think that I would almost put this in the same category where like, Jacob, you're absolutely right. Like with all the cartoons and everything, like, I enjoyed it a lot as a kid. It was all – this movie imprinted on me very much so, not just for the scary stuff but for the fun stuff too. So I really loved it. But I think – in terms of the writing and the storyline itself, I really think that this is meant for adults that grew up with these animated characters so that they're able to have that nostalgia when watching it, but really enjoy the actual plot and be able to absorb what's being what's being in front of them, what's being told yeah. to them. I think I like it as kind of a baby's first film noir. <laughs> this, this is a gateway. <laughs> the golden book of Chinatown. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I I am probably not showing this to my daughter right now. She is seven. She's very tender hearted. I'm working towards Gremlins. Like we're we're getting there. I'm really hoping by next year she'll watch Gremlins with me. If you want to tell me that's terrible parenting, please write in. But yeah, I I, I put this as like a ten, like ten year old, maybe nine, ten, depending on the kid at least for our household, because it does have such dark, traumatic things. It and does. there's a lot, I don't think I was that old, and there's a lot I didn't appreciate. I'll be honest, I appreciated it far more now, having watched these other film noir type films and getting to it and saying, wow, what they're doing is, you don't have to do it that well. Like that's not, you're doing yes. things so well for this type of movie why the detail like i was talking earlier about the cinematography and the details and composition of each scene are just astonishing like there there's there's this scene where eddie valiant beats up beats up in quotes like gets into a fight with a guy at the bar because the guy's needling him about working with tunes and he's been traumatized by this and he beats him up and rushes out of the bar and the guy's like what did I say? And Dolores, the bartender, they set her up. She like takes this step forward into focus, but the there's a line of men at the bar behind her and she just kind of steps into her light and she just says, don't you know, his brother was killed by a tune. And like, you can just see all three of the men at the bar behind her turn around at the same time and look and like the lights and everything's rattling because the train's going like the care with each moment in this movie is amazing. Absolutely. And it's going to set some standards going forward for Disney. There's actually a term and we'll, we'll talk about it in a little bit that Disney t takes from this movie and it starts being applied to their other films. Uh, but first I want to talk about judge doom and Lizzie, you've, you brought up Christopher Lloyd's judge doom in this film. He, his character description is just, he doesn't blink. That was how Christopher Lloyd read it. And if you look at this movie, he actually doesn't. He does not blink. Does he do a good job of creeping you out? Yes, absolutely. I mean, he's – even without being Christopher Lloyd, you know, who just – because, again, he just has this – when I think of him, I normally think of this very jovial, almost childlike type of uh, type of caricature. And I – whereas – in this, he's 
he's very disarming. You know, you watch him and you you feel very unsettled just by looking at him. It's the it's the the clothing to me is just kind of an aside, but for me really what it is, it's the cadence of his voice, just the way he's able to talk because he has that Christopher Walken kind of intensity to his voice, but he's able to do it really smoothly with almost zero inflection at times. And then um and I don't, just his ability to just stare into your soul. It's just, it's very, very disarming. I find I found him so creepy and scary as a kid. And even before he makes his tune transition. And then once he makes that tune transition, it's game over. Like I had so many nightmares as a kid with the big <laughs> eyes and the crazy voice and just that steamroll scene that you're talking about, Chad. I mean, all, that whole entire sequence was epic. Agreed. Agreed. That's an, that, like that whole sequence is amazing. And he, like you talk about his eyes and not blinking. Can we also talk about his teeth for a second? He has to be having, he has to be wearing some kind of prosthetic teeth because all of his teeth are straight and they're inhumanly white even before it's revealed he's a tune. Mm. If you look wow. in his mouth, you're like, wow, what it like he. I couldn't find anything to support that. But just looking at his mouth the whole time, I'm like, that's nuts. On the other hand, it was the 80s and maybe they were really, really bleaching. But just, yeah. And they shoot him so often. They shoot him from below so that he's looming over the camera. Mm -hmm. And there's like light, almost always a lighting effect. Like in that sequence at the end, he's coming down this elevator. They're shooting from below. So he's coming down. He's looming over you. And behind you, behind him on the shadow on the wall is like the shadow of a of a monster basically it's a dinosaur or a monster with like claws and huge teeth and it's not like you know, there's no reason for it to be there it's not like you can't see what is making that shadow it's in the background but it's there and all of that and yeah sorry and and his performance is shocking as well because yes doc brown in back to the future which i think was the last thing as a kid i saw him i mean, to see him in this and that was just yeah game over as you say yeah, yeah J- so good. Jacob, you're right, because the introduction we have to Judge Doom, it's his cane, and they take the tip of the cane and work their way up. So mm-hmm. we do a lot of those menacing from the ground up shots of him. And Lizzie, I think your initial description back in the opener fit for what I wrote down. It, I wasn't convinced that I was seeing Christopher Lloyd, because I'm used to this manic energy. I'm like, this Dude sort of looks like Christopher Lloyd, but he's <laughs> being much more subdued and much weirder in a not friendly way. I don't, I don't like this. I haven't seen the Star Trek that he he played a villain as well. He apparently played a good Star oh, Trek cool. villain. Oh, I didn't see that one either. But yeah, that's where he said he got that experience, and he said he had a great time doing this. But man, when he picks up the little tiny. Squeaky shoe. Oh, no, I know. It's so sad. <laughs> like, I'm sitting there going, nope, nope, cannot show this to my seven-year-old as he slowly no. dissolves the equivalent yes. of a cartoon puppy. Yes. No. <laughs> it's so bad. It's so bad. One thing that's so creepy about him, too, I like saying that like he's disarming, I think it's because there's something in somebody that can, like you said perfectly, that just can maintain this very calm demeanor. It's unpredictable. And so you're kind of watching, like not really knowing what's going to happen next. And 
I I find that really, really unsettling. And he does a very good job of it, which is so surprising. Like we, we've already touched on coming from him. But the, the shoe's very, very sad. I was upset about that as a kid and that stayed as an yes. adult. Yes. This is this is something a little more upsetting about the shoe to think about. The uh so when the weasels die at the end, they laugh themselves to death and they immediately turn into angels and go into heaven, which good for them. There's a heaven for everybody. Um that doesn't happen with the shoe. Oh, you made it worse. Uh, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> Once you realize it, you're like, oh, snap. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it has a partner somewhere that's now shoeless. Oh. <laughs> On, on that happy note, Jacob, <laughs> I want to talk about the mystery and the film noir elements throughout this film. Your podcast focuses a lot on murder mystery. Does this film, does it do a good job of misdirection and the mystery, or are you just along for the zaniness of the cartoons? This this 100% nails the mystery on this. Like That's one of the great things about this movie for me, is that it really does work it like it works as a mystery it works as a fun like cartoon romp like the machinations in the mystery and all of this like it's a it's a i mean all noir is very basic at heart which is basically like someone done someone wrong and are they going to get away with it and this is that and you think along the way there's all these different ways that you think it can end at like it could have ended like a noir could have ended with the fact that Acme was just a horrible person and didn't actually have a will or it could have ended that Maroon was behind it all trying to get trying to like gin up this to like manipulate his star player into actually being on it and so it it keeps rolling through and escalating who did it and also escalating why because like Acme could have done it because Acme was clearly in love or less. Maroon needed it for everything I've already said. But then you think about why Judge Doom is doing it. And then you bring in all of this other like social commentary of what's happening in all this. Like, Because again, in the 40s, urban renewal was happening as they built the interstate and all kinds of... Com- That's social commentary. It's not so much about the noir. But the noir aspect of it all is also... So one, two, three, boom takes you to an unexpected place. Two, it's also completely set up from the get-go and from the jump what's happening and where it's going. So like at the very beginning, like the first thing you see of the, you see him get on a red trolley and ride it to his office. Across the street is the headquarters for the red trolley, which is where his girlfriend Dolores works at a bar in the same building. But as he's walking over there, they're hoisting up a sign that says Cloverleaf Industries on it, which is what Judge Doom owns. And as you and as you, as you go through it even more, it's like okay, I completely lost my train of thought. But there's there's another there are other little clues. Oh, Judge Doom! How did Judge Doom get his judgeship? It's when you first see him, they explain. Oh, nobody knows where he came from. He appeared a couple of years ago, spent a bunch of simoleons, and bought the election. Right. Great. Well, at the same time, later on, you hear Eddie Valiant's story, where it's just like. Somebody dropped a safe on his brother and got away with millions of simoleons. And you like you put that together, you're like, oh yeah, Judge Doom killed his brother, bought the election, and came to power. Like all of these little pieces just all fit together in an unexpected way. So yeah, I as you can tell, I clearly believe it works as a noir. I totally did not connect those dots. That is awesome. I didn't either. That's really cool. 
Thank you for cleaning that up for me. And, <laughs> and part of the misdirection too is our Jessica Rabbit. Because mm-hmm. yes, in the shadow, she's got guns drawn and they're going off and we don't know what's happening and whose side she's on. She's giving Eddie the side eye from that car in the street as she's listening in on her conversation. We're pretty sure it's her. And then she admits that that hits poor Roger in the head with a frying pan. Like she is. I didn't she want him t- to get hurt. <laughs> she t- yeah, it's great cartoon logic. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They are indestructible aside from dip, but you don't quite believe her when she says the famous line, I, I'm just drawn bad. Like I'm not bad. I'm just drawn bad. I, yeah. I don't know what you, you are a seductress. And you're a temptress. And Bob Hoskins had no idea what she was going to look like. He was told by Robert Zemeckis because the sketches weren't done. It's like, just imagine your ideal sexual fantasy. That's a creepy thing to say to anyone. Uh, And that's who Jessica is going to be. And Bob Hoskins has come out and said, my fantasy did not look nearly as risque as Jessica <laughs> Rabbit in this film. So let's let's talk about her because okay. she, she is probably why a lot of people remember this film. Uh, what do you make of this character after watching this? Does she does she fit in this environment? Is it for a Disney film? I think I think she's so fun, and I mean to be totally honest, you still see famous Gen Z TikTokers dress up like Jessica Rabbit. So like she's still super relevant today. And I I actually saw it in fact by at least three really, really famous TikTokers now. So I mean it's something that is being done. She holds up. Um and I think there's an element of it because it's a, an animated character that people can kind of feel like they can do it and get away with without feeling that they're going all the way on that side. But she's she is like being a film noir movie, you need a femme fatale, right? Like it's not gonna work without that's really a necessity in order to really not technically classify as a noir, but I think in order to kind of check those boxes that people associate with noir. And so she I think it was so fun that they had the femme fatale be animated. You know, because they could have easily had somebody uh, somebody else like his love interest or really anybody else qualify as that. But to have the juxtaposition of Roger with Jessica Rabbit, you know, he's even like, what do you see in him anyway? And she's like, he makes me laugh. Right. <laughs> it's just – it's so great. I don't know. She, she works for me. I know she's she's so out there and very, um, very risque, but I think – kind of all works. It's supposed to be in like the most hyperbolic version of a femme fatale. And I think that they nailed that with her. The untrustworthy dame. Yes. I, I, I agree. I think she works. And I think, I think part of the reason she still works is because she's animated. Like had they actually just used Kathleen Turner, I don't think it would have aged as well simply because like, she is very risque and she is very sexy, but she is also at the same time unreal and literally unreal in that. So I think she can do that whole like classic movie thing where it's like she can hit into that dreamlike idea 
of what it means to be sexy without actually having to be sexy. So you can, she can still have the idea of being sexy now, which is why she might like people still identify with that because it's not that it's like, she's not wearing shoulder pads and has like eyelashes out like in the eighties, but she has this idea of being sexual. Like, I do think that they do that they do that thing where they try to have it both ways a little bit. Like when she goes to see Eddie Valiant the first time, like she is she like she knows exactly what she's doing and how she's manipulating him, especially yeah. when the girlfriend uh, Dolores shows up and she like blows Eddie Valiant a kiss. Yes. So she she definitely has some manipulative manipulative tendencies that they kind of pull away from in that. To your point, Lizzie, what you were talking about, like she does just say, I love him because he makes me laugh. So she gets to she gets to have this sexuality, but she gets to have this kind of just down, like just a little bit of rootedness and a little bit of playfulness that maybe you wouldn't get otherwise if you were if it was literally somebody who was supposed to be sexy or a femme noir. So Yes. They mentioned at one point in that scene that you're referring to, Jacob, where she's like, you have no idea what it's like to be a woman and be drawn this way. And then he's refers to like, you know, you have no idea what it means to be like a man looking at you being drawn right. that way. And so, yeah, it almost like kind of begs the question of like, should we feel sorry for Jessica Rabbit? <laughs> is, she, is she this tortured soul that's never going to get taken seriously because she's just that sexy? But yeah, I think being animated kind of gives you permission to to really enjoy her. Yeah. It is the 1940s timeline. So she is using the tools available to her, but at the same time we get reinforcement that Roger is the catch. There's, there's another tune that Mm. makes the same comment of, well, Jessica's the lucky one. Roger Rabbit is, is the big catch. So that that's interesting. And my wife says the same thing when people have asked her, why are you with him? which is always a fun question. She says, he makes me laugh. I'm like, oh, I'm the Roger Rabbit in this situation. I'm, <laughs> that's not a great place to be. We'll get you a bow tie. Yeah, yeah. That's, no, <laughs> no, that does not, does not work. But let's talk. We have an amazing cast here. And mm-hmm. oh my goodness, the potential cast is amazing as well. So Harrison Ford was our first choice for Eddie Valiant. He's too expensive. Can't get him. So we go to Chevy Chase. He's the second choice. He's not interested. I think Chevy may be a bit too mean here. We'd see. Yeah. Bill I Mur- love Chevy Chase. Oh, Sorry, no. Russell. <laughs> <laughs> Bill Murray was also considered. But if you know about Bill Murray, he is a weirdo when it comes to his casting. You have to call and leave a message on his answering machine, and he will respond to it. When he gets the time, when he checks his messages, he never did. He never got the message. And so when Robert Zemeckis years later is saying, hey, I really wanted Bill Murray for this movie. Bill Murray reads the interview in a magazine. He's in a public place. And he said he just screamed his lungs out because he would have accepted the role. So that's a that's a fun what if. Eddie Murphy turned down the role. He said he deeply regrets it. Robert Robin Williams, Robert Redford, Jack Nicholson, Sylvester Stallone. That's terrible. Yes. Wallace Shawn, who would have been hilarious. Ed Harris, among others. We have a lot of considerations here. So Wow. Anyone in that list that you can kind of see? Like Bob Hoskins is great here. So good. He's so perfect. I Of that list, 
I would go mostly with Ed Harris, simply because I think Ed Harris can play, like there needs to be like a little bit of a salt of the earth to that character. You know what I mean? Like all of these characters are just, I might be using the wrong word here. They're just kind of schnooks. They're just kind of like, they are, they aren't, they aren't beautiful people. They aren't like upper crust, upper class people. These are like down on their heels, people just trying to get by and they're not cool. They're not super funny. So yeah, no, of that list, I would go with Ed Harris. I like it. I like that. I actually think I could see Harrison Ford in that role. I think Harrison Ford, I think he does such a good job of playing a serious role without taking himself too seriously. And, mm. uh, you know, like I.E. Any Indiana Jones kind of vibe. And I think he he would have done a good job with that. Harrison Ford is a very handsome man. But I think to your point, Jacob, he is able – to play that salt of the earth, I think very well. I think he can he can humble himself a lot. And whereas somebody like Chevy Chase, or I honestly, I think even Bill Murray, like they bring too much of themselves almost into it. And like there's that that manic like tendencies that they have that I don't know would work for me. Bill Murray, I could see Chevy Chase. I don't know if I would want to watch it like at all. I really. Like I, to me, it's like Nicolas Cage and then Chevy Chase is like right behind those. Those are the two, my least favorite actors. <laughs> <laughs> I would not appreciate either one. You and I are picking some Nicolas Cage movies. I'm going to convert you by the end of this no. this year. No, nope, never <laughs> will. So many people have tried. It's never going to work. I'll get it. I'll get it. <laughs> I, I feel like Wallace Shawn could work. I think he'd be, but my only concern would be he, he wouldn't be serious enough. Bob Hoskins does such a great job playing this straight. Can you picture Wallace Shawn punching anybody though? No. That's I, that's I, <laughs> I would like him to. Yeah, I think there'd be comedy in him punching someone that he obviously shouldn't be hitting. Yes. But what didn't work was Tim Curry. Tim Curry auditioned for the judge and everyone said he was way too terrifying. So. <laughs> I believe so, that. I can 100% believe that. Yeah. Three years later, he's Pennywise. So we've all seen terrifying Tim Curry. Uh, Christopher Lee also turned down the role. And that's, that's a little sad. John Cleese was considered, but he was not deemed scary enough. Uh, yeah, that's that's fair. And then we have Peter O'Toole, F. Murray Abram, and Sting were ultimately Shut the front door. Sting? Yes, Sting. Sting. <laughs> Yeah, he, man, I can't remember around this time, but he did get a big role, he, a starring role. But Christopher Lloyd was cast because Robert Zemeckis eventually gets the director's chair, and he'd worked with Zemeckis and Spielberg on Back to the Future. So we bring in Christopher Lloyd. Uh, the original Roger Rabbit was Paul Rubens. That was his voice. But oh. Charles Charles Fleischer took over, and he, uh, he did some fun things to help Bob Hoskins out. It wasn't like the Ian McKellen crying because he's acting in front of a tennis ball. So Charles Fleischer is, uh, he actually dressed in a rabbit suit and stood behind the camera and would like yell lines to Bob Hoskins to help him out. So that's, that's a fun thing, but yeah, Robert Zemeckis, he wanted this film. He wanted to direct this and he offered in 1982 and he was turned down because his first two films were box office bombs. And they said, no, sir, we no. Uh, Terry Gilliam was then offered the film and mm. he turned it down. He said it was quote unquote, too technically challenging. Mm. 
After seeing the film, he says he completely regretted the decision, and he admits, I was just being lazy. It was pure laziness on my part. So he turns it down. It comes back to Robert Zemeckis. Uh, this is based on a book by Gary Wolf from 1981. It is Who Censored Roger Rabbit? And Roger is actually murdered in the novel, and his they have a like lingering spirit. They call it a doppel. It's a doppelganger that can stick around for a week or so, however much time, but not not permanently. And that spirit helps Eddie solve the crime. Huh. So, so it's a it's a very different novel. Roger is terrifying in the artwork. Look it up. Like just, I'm glad they didn't stick with that design. I tried to read the novel back when it back when the movie came out. I was like, oh yeah, it's based on this. The book is always better. And I don't know if it was my age or the book or what. I just I I gave up after like just a chapter or two. Oh man. It's supposed to be funny, but I don't know how that would hold up. Like I don't know how that would read. I've so much of this is just on screen gags. Yeah. I think it would be really hard. And Rarely do I want to talk about cinematography, but Jacob has brought brought it up, and it is excellent here. We have Dean Cundy. He is he's a John Carpenter guy. He does Halloween, The Fog, Halloween Two, The Thing, Season of the Witch, Big Trouble in Little China, all fantastic. But he's also a Zemeckis guy. He does Romancing the Stone, Back to the Future, uh, One, Two, and Three, and we covered it. Death Becomes Her. Also works with Steven Spielberg on Hook and Jurassic Park. And then he turns to Ron Howard and does things like Flintstones, Flubber, What Women Want, Parent Trap. This this is not a great list for him. The Spy <laughs> Next Door and Garfield and Jackson, Jack and Jill. So I I don't know what happened to his his filmography there. It, it falls apart, but it's a great early start. And he's yes. a very talented. He's individual. got some good talents. Yes. Yeah, so he he's got a great eye. Just whoo, those Rob Ron Howard family <laughs> comedies. I I don't know what what is happening. My brother and I walked out of Flubber. We saw it on opening weekend. I think it was a Thanksgiving opening weekend. We saw it. We walked out of the movie at the end of it, and we were like, we never need to speak of that again. No, <laughs> just, I don't blame you. I'm not a fan either. I yeah. love the fact that Adam Sandler won the Razzie for worst actor and worst actress for Jack and Jill. So <laughs> he earned that. Oh God, he did. And Robert Zemeckis, his, his directorial works, uh, used cars is listed as, as his first. He had another early one box office bomb. Uh, he does romancing the stone in 1984 back to the future, 1985 that obviously gets attention and says, okay, maybe you can direct this movie. Maybe it can succeed. So he does who frame Roger rabbit followed by the sequels to back to the future. Death becomes her. We cover that on retro movie Roundtable. Check it out. Forrest Gump contact. What lies beneath Castaway? the polar express. This is great. It uh, gets less great from 2007 on. We have Beowulf, uh, Christmas Carol, Flight, The Walk, Allied, and Welcome to Marwin. If you've seen any of those movies, yeah, raise your hand. No, no, yeah. Some of the prior to your disclaimer that they get worse. I've seen many right. of those, but yeah. not uh, not any of the recent ones. Maybe Christmas Carol, if it's the Jim Carrey one. 2009. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. Might be. Yeah. It might Sounds be. Right. 
the like three D animated Christmas Carol. That sounds like okay. Okay, mm-hmm. I I wasn't sure about that. I thought about seeing Beowulf, but that's one of those things you absolutely don't pay any good money to see. Like it's it's a Netflix only thing. Uh, and he does serve as a writer. We just have to throw this in because it's self-serving for Tales from the Crypt presents Bordello of Blood. Cover that on Retro Movie Roundtable. How obscure. Go check it out. It's a fun Tales from the Crypt episode. So our atmosphere, this is set in 1947. It's this alternate timeline of Hollywood where there's a true Hollywood and then there's like a back area that is Toontown. Do you like this timepiece of 1947, I guess you have to for the crime noir to work. You need it in this time period. But do you like the setting being in old Hollywood? Yes, I love it. I think it feels – there's something about that the old style Hollywood that feels so glamorous. I think that's what keeps everybody in love with Hollywood is the idea of what once – like what was – and it's just like simple decadence and simplicity and but all done with just like this this very like richness to it and in the sense where everything just feels very full and i i really really enjoy those types of movies but i i love the idea of toontown i think toontown just sounds so much fun like this epic world where tunes are just walking around amongst you it is just such a fun idea and it's such a pleasure to watch it you know like where no one is phased by the fact that the fantasia brooms are moving around right. or like you know there's a hippo in your way and it's like no big deal and it's just it it's so much fun it really makes the movie I think that's what keeps people coming back is the fact that it's just you make it something that seems so grand and amazing, no big deal. And it's just you want to be there. You do get that drab concrete wall or the brick wall when Bob Hoskins Eddie comes into Hollywood and you see Toontown in the background and there are just things, bright blue sky and things leaping around in the background and he just looks exasperated. But yeah, it does <laughs> it does look like a fun place to stay. I I love the time period. Um I think I mentioned earlier there's part of the whole noir about this and this part of the social commentary on all this is that they really are setting in Toontown for a bunch of minority communities at that time that were absolutely getting destroyed to build the freeway. So I think I knew I think they knew exactly what they were doing when when they set in that time period and I also love the look of that time period as well the like short ties they're like they're kind of comedic in and of themselves at this point to me but like the snappy zoot suits on the weasels and the like the the yeah just the architecture and everything around it i i love art deco so all right all right some architecture talk somewhere russell is smiling he's he's a resident architect i i like the time period too everything I don't know what it is about the 40s, but everything seems both more glamorous to Lizzie's point, but also more dangerous. Like there's this mm-hmm. undercurrent of nefarious things happening. And it's probably just because we spent so many t- movies in the 40s where nobody's trustworthy at all. So <laughs> yeah, I, I like that feeling and especially the writs of Hollywood. And we do get a ton of special effects. There's so many things going on here. Uh, 
one thing I mentioned earlier that I'll, I'll talk about now. So Roger Rabbit, he bumps a lamp. And that sounds like something stupid, something really banal. But this lamp spins and the shadow tracks. And this goes back to why is this movie doing things this hard for so little effect? But it was such a headache for the animators. And this became a term for all of Disney Animation Studios. They call it bumping the lamp. And that's their wide wide use phrase for going the extra effort. So they're tracking that shadow of a lamp. And there's so many cool little touches there. Uh, we we have we talked about Jessica. There are boob physics that we probably we notice she's unnatural, but yes. they deliberately animated her breasts to work opposite of how a human woman would. So when she's walking, they are going up instead of down. And so there's there's a deliberate like otherworldly quality that the animators took care to do as weird as that is. And every frame with these animations has to be printed out. There's a still photograph outline has to be hand colored and then composited back into the original frame in this optical printer. So there is a huge, huge process going into these 82,000 frames to make this movie. So yeah, Jacob, go ahead. There's there's a story. I couldn't find this. I wanted to find this for the pod so I could cite it. There's a story that when they were filming, there's a scene where ba, Eddie Valiant is sticking Roger in a sink. And then he comes out of the sink, but he's still holding him. And he yeah. spits water. And when they were filming these scenes, or maybe it was when he's pulling the ears, but in any event, they came to him and they said, you need to keep your fingers together when you're holding him. And he's just like, what? What do you mean? It's just like, if you grab something and you think about it, your fingers don't necessarily touch when you grab it. But if they're not touching, that meant that they had to go through and animate everything in between the fingers. So if he kept his fingers together, they only had to do above and below it. So yeah, like all those things like that. Astonishing. Yeah, there are even... Even some of the happy accident gags, there's a pelican that's riding a bike and the pelican falls over. And the reason he falls over is the animators weren't able to animate the bike all the way through that shot. They couldn't get the bike to to work. So they just said, whatever, it's just going to fall over. And that became a gag. So, <laughs> that's that's amazing. I love it. It's like their own inside joke. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm sure they had a blast here just putting in things. There's there's a rumor and so Who Framed Roger Rabbit sold out, I want to say on DVD because there's an old internet rumor that if you slow down at a certain point there's an animation of Jessica Rabbit without clothes. And so the initial release of the DVD like you could only do it if you slowed it down to whatever period. I have not investigated this. This is Internet rumor, but yeah. Was... I heard the same rumor. The The rumor I heard is that it's the Laserdisc. They'd clean okay. it up by the time DVD came around. It's the Laserdisc. Yeah. I, true or not, I don't know. But yes, that's funny that those, yeah. 
It seems up there with the Disney rule thirty four. Yeah, there's I mean, all kinds of Disney rumors, like Little Mermaid, yeah. Lion King. They're they're kind of yeah. all over the place. Apparently, there's yeah. some kind of dark sexual underbelly to the, <laughs> yeah. to the Disney world. I mean, the Little Mermaid thing was just essentially the super bad stuff of bored animator draws a penis. <laughs> like, yeah, super we, bad. Yes, we, we get it. So they they clean that up later, but yeah. It, um, and then we have our soundtrack and Robert Zemeckis is, is laughing about this. So Alan Silvestri is the one that composes our film score and he uses the London Symphony Orchestra to do American jazz. And Zemeckis is like, you got all these British professional musicians. They can't keep a jazz tempo. They can't keep up like they want to play classical music, but, uh, he does get it done. Jessica Rabbit's themes, they're entirely improvised and he's heavily influenced by Carl Stallings work and he's heavily rewarded for this. He wins a Grammy Grammy award for best album of original instrumental background score written for a motion picture or television show. That is a very long award title. (laughs) Did, did the music help set the mood of that? that background kind of walk into the office classic feel dame needs help yeah 100 percent. and like it it not only sets the the feel for that but it also sets it this is one thing that i say does set it firmly in the 80s is just that little like saxophone solo kind of rolling (laughs) on with it yes the careless whisper Yes. Yes. It's fun to have the juxtaposition too of this very serious music married with all of the different tune sounds and everything too. And mm. even in Toontown, they have their kind of rendition of it's a small world after all. And I um, I love the juxtaposition of that. I think it's really, really fun. It's almost like its own little example of what the movie represents is kind of both worlds coming together. What was the song? Carousel Broke Down or something like that? Something like, Ma! I don't even I don't know. I couldn't even well, they- do it, but they're just all kind of – talking about how they're happy and smiling and, <laughs> and yeah. that had never occurred to me until you said that because I was listening to the song being like it sounds really familiar and it wasn't until you said it's a small world I'm like yes that is a direct that is its direct comp uh thank yes. you for that yeah. <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah, and we have Roger singing and we even have that gag of okay the record the the needle gets moved yes. off mm-hmm. so he just keeps going no pain no pain no pain <laughs> and smashing things over his head so they're using the music for the comedy, too. While you bring up the next thing, I just want to check in on that scene for a second. This is hilarious to me. Dolores is the only person we ever see working in this bar. She goes to check out probate, leaving a rabbit alone with a bunch of drunken reprobates. Like, at the right. very least, how, what, like that, that liquor is gone. Like, they have just Absolutely. been helping themselves to liquor for hours now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, Eddie has the same reaction. Like, why... Why you had one yeah. job? One <laughs> watch, watch this rabbit who has been deliberate about everything with the handcuffs. It's like, why did you not take your hand out of the? Hand? You could do that the entire time. It's like, only when it was funny. Yeah, <laughs> genius line. It's so yes, good. yes, he's so agitating and it's and lovable too. But he he toes that line very well. So, are you guys ready to hand out some awards? Yes. Let's do it. All right. Let's talk our MVP. 
Jacob, who's your MVP of Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Uh, this is a hard one for me, and I haven't picked one yet. It has to, for me, I think it has to go back and forth between Bob Hoskins and Christopher Lloyd. Um, makes sense. They're the two, well, Roger's in there too, but like the two human characters. Okay, the, never mind. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. Um, because I, I think Bob Hoskins is such, he does such good work selling everything. Like, like, just like the animators had to do everything right, I think he did everything right in terms of his reactions and his eye lines and his like his empathetic re- character and reactions to everybody on it. And then Christopher Lloyd is just like he doesn't blink, he doesn't blink. He's so set up the whole time. Um, but you know what? I do. I have to give it to Bob because I don't think if he doesn't sell it, this movie doesn't work. And I think he really nails it. So yeah, I think I have to give it to Bob. Excellent choice. Lizzie? Yeah, I agree with you. I went with Bob as well. I have to imagine it had to be so challenging to act alone. You know, even in the scenes, you know, where he's with Mickey and Bugs and all the scenes with Roger, it's, you know, he has to, the energy that would be required of you in order to really bounce off of and like act like you're really having a true conversation. I think that that takes so much talent to really bring that kind of energy. And he just, like you said it perfectly, Jacob. I mean, if it, he didn't make it work, then it doesn't work. And he, he truly sold it. He did an excellent job. I'm sure Bob Hoskins wouldn't appreciate it, but when I think of him, I think of the absolute terrible Super Mario Brothers movie. <laughs> I love that movie so much. Oh, no. So much. Oh, no. Talk what about nightmares. I had so many nightmares over Goombas as a kid. Yes. Well, that's uh, that's because they're like tiny little dinosaur heads. Mm-hmm. So many things wrong with that movie. But I just think of him in that tragedy. And then we get this performance. And yeah, he's my MVP too. I just think, I don't know if it was a decision of his or the director's, but he just does such a great job as the straight man. And he's saying even some of these ridiculous lines, just with a straight face, just with that sharp 40s type wit. But He's never going, he's never leaning into the zaniness, even though everything around him is insane. Judge is going around doing the da, 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 da. And <laughs> Roger's just going nuts in the background. And he's just like, what is wrong with you? So I think that's the appropriate reaction. I, I love Bob Hoskins in this. Best supporting actor, Jacob. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with Dolores in this. Um, the actress, so the actress's name on that. I brought this up is Joanna Cassidy, and she is. She is so good. She's just. She's sweet and she's earnest and she's a little fed up all at the same time. So yeah. Yeah, her Great jealousy choice. scenes when she walks in on Jessica and. She catches him literally with his pants down. Yes, <laughs> a great line. Yeah. That was fantastic. Lizzie, who's yours? I went with Christopher Lloyd on this one. I I think he's just – it's epic. I think he does such an amazing job and for all of the reasons that we've we've said earlier, and I think he just – he brought it home. Right. Childhood trauma, Christopher Lloyd. That's right. (laughs) I am going with the man of a thousand voices, Mel Blanc. If Bugs or Daffy sound off – this 
movie is ruined. And so to be able to get Mel in to do those classic Looney Tunes characters, that's such a huge boon to this movie. It just lends to the authenticity. So don't don't give me cheap Looney Tune knockoffs. You've got to give me the the real deal. Hidden Gem. My goodness, there are so many things going on in this movie. Jacob, what'd you narrow it down to? I think for all the I think all of the little throwaway gags that happen in this movie, um, like I'll I'll say two. Like when he's in Toontown, there's all kinds of little like the truck that he runs into and all this things spill out of is like Acme overused gags. Um yes. the there's the a anvils and bowling yeah, balls. Yeah. There's a film the, there's a theater in the background where it says we change our shorts daily. Um and then as he's like creeping through the alleyway, there's a sign of Porky Pig eating sausage and it says Porky Pig's all beef sausage. Right. Like <laughs> So those those are lots of this and there's lots of little easter eggs like that throughout this movie. So those are mine. Excellent. Lizzie I just put all of the cameos. I mean, this normally I can find a hidden gem and really go there, but for this one, it just I went for the low hanging fruit of like there. You know, you got Betty Boop and Mickey Mouse and just like the whole gangs on both sides, and so it's just it's so much fun to be able to point all of them out throughout the movie. Betty Boop had such a great line. She's like, "I've still got it." Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. I'm not getting as much work now that color everything's going into color. Right. And we didn't talk about it. I probably should have mentioned it earlier, but there was a big debate and fight with Warner Brothers and Disney of the big characters had to have equal screen time, which lends to our wonderful dueling piano scenes with Donald Duck and and Daffy. So that's fantastic. And then Bugs and Mickey at the same time. And even at the end, we have Porky Pig and Tinkerbell. So there are, yes. these big characters are sharing the screen but then even the dumbo thing it's like he's great he mm -hmm. works for peanuts yes yes i love that yeah for me it's actually an uncredited actress so kathleen turner she provides the voice of jessica rabbit mm. she doesn't get credit i want to give her credit here i think she does an amazing job with that sultry voice yeah i but, didn't realize but uh one more shout out though is joel silver he yes. is He's the director of the Baby Herman cartoon short. He uh, He's the actual uh, human being that interrupts the cartoon. And the reason I pick it is because it drove Michael Eisner nuts. Him and Michael Eisner hate each other. They hated each other since Paramount. And so Robert Zemeckis calls up Joel Silver. Joel Silver shaves off his trademark mustache, paid his own expenses, kept off the cash sheets, unrecognizable. When Michael Eisner finds out that he's in his movie, Eisner just shrugs and goes, he was pretty good, I guess. So, <laughs> so it's, I, I love that Robert Zemeckis is just that petty. I was going to say, that's pretty yes. petty. <laughs> I'm going to go get this guy my boss hates and just sneak him in the movie. So recast, are you uh, recasting Tweety Bird or Foghorn Leg Leghorn here, Jacob? I thought about this. So, so I have, I do have a, I have a cartoon recast and a human recast. The cartoon Ooh. recast, which would be, which I think would be interesting, um, would be to so. Roger idolizes Goofy, 
and much of him is like has a goofy sensibility. I would I would like to see Goofy in the Roger Rabbit role. I think that oh, could, nice. I think that could be a really interesting take on this. Um, yeah, yeah, right. Um, but the other one I was thinking about was so I I'm double dipping again. So with Dolores, I was thinking about who could play that part, and so I've got two for you. One, if we were doing it in the '80s, I would have loved to have seen how Rhea Perlman would do. Rhea Perlman was the barmaid yes. from Cheers with the really curly hair. I think she could have been a lot of fun in that. Um, and if we're doing it now. I would love to see America Ferreira. Oh, I love uh, her. Yeah. yeah. I like both I think of those. Be, yeah. So. And that, that film that they're watching with Goofy, so this is a fun anachronism, it, it hadn't come out by the timeline that they're setting this movie. It's actually mm. two years later. But the animators said, nobody's going to notice. This is the zaniest Disney thing that we can find that Roger's going to be attracted to. So they put it in anyways. We noticed Disney. We called you out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Lizzie, who are you I, recasting? I recasted Marvin Acme with Dustin Hoffman. Oh. Yes. I think that – because I kind of wanted whoever was going to play Marvin Acme to have that childlike kind of wonder and whim- whimsical-ness to him, I guess. And I, I think – Although I don't have anything against the actor that played Marvin Acme, I just I think Dustin Hoffman does such a good job in in those kind of childlike roles. Whether he's a you know Mister, it was like Mister Megorium's Wonder Emporium, or he's Hook. You know, regardless of that kind of whether he's good or bad, he does a very good job in these childlike roles. So I think he would have done a great job as an executive man that just loves tunes. I think he would have brought something to the role and been a cool face to see. I thought you were going to go with the the dude that played the dad in Toys, uh, Donald O'Connor. Oh, I should have. I didn't Aww. even think about that to tie that in. Yes. Yeah. Seems seems up the same alley. Like Does. Just that, that whimsy of loving toys. I I like Christopher Lloyd in this movie, but I like Christopher Lee more. I want the menace. And Christopher Lee can ham it up. He is in a lot of B grade and B might be generous horror movies. <laughs> he knows it and he acknowledges it and he still plays it with a Shakespearean authenticity. And I, I want that alternate timeline. It's a fantastic movie. That's a good bad. choice. Best shot. I have said so many, but, and th- cause like, I think this movie is full of them. What, blows my mind as well as all of that is the scene when Eddie comes into the office at the end of the day when he's he's turned Roger over um, or he's turned the pictures over, Roger's flipped out. He comes back to his office and he sits down at his desk and basically falls asleep there. And it pans from him down to the desk and just gives a history of his relationship with his brother like the fact that they were on the police force together and that they would have fun and go to the beach and that like he, they were very helpful for tunes, but also everything is dusty and this hasn't been touched. And like you, you just get this sense in the story of who they are in this gentle pan around everything. And then you come back up in the same pan and it's morning and a whole night has elapsed and the cop is there waking him up. And like that's such a nice little twist at the end of it. That's, that's my shot that I really love. 
like that. Like that. It's a great choice. Yeah. I wish we got more of his brother. Like I wanted a bit mm-hmm. more of that story. Lizzie, what's your best shot? Yeah. I put the scene when he's falling and it's just that's the whole entire shot of him, you know, trying to to get a parachute and he's with Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse because to me that just feels iconic to see the two of them next to each other and looking at that as a still shot of those three characters next to each other just feels really important and impactful. And I I think it's very, very cool that they were able to make that, make that happen. And so that scene is not necessarily my favorite scene now, but just the, the style and the shot of it is, is awesome. Yeah. That's mine as well. I, that's Mm. the mind boggling moment. I don't think it's impactful for younger generations, but for our generation and older, it's incredible to see two icons on screen that you never thought you would. And then they're not helpful at all. I I kind of expect that out of Bugs Bunny, like doing the ain't I a stinker and handing him the spare, the spare tire. But Mickey Mouse is not helpful at all. Mickey, he'd get his mask of tools 100% and he would figure something out with them, right? (laughs) Toodles does not exist in 1947 and that's a much happier timeline. I guess it's fair. Yeah. There was no hot dog dance. Oh, the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. I hated that time period. (laughs) I'm still in it. We've been in it. I don't know when I'm going to get out of it. I (laughs) am. Well, hot dog, hot dog, hot diggity dog. That's right. All right. Best scene, Jacob. Best scene. Um, Oh, golly. I completely forgot about this one. I think I'll go with the best scene as the, where they introduce Jessica, like that whole scene at the, at the club. Because when you walk in and Daffy and Donald are up there and then he talks to Betty Boop and there's a little interlude with Marvin Acme and then she comes out like that's such a, yeah, that's such a great sequence in there. I'll go with that as the best scene. That was fantastic. Acme's giving him the joy buzzer and the invisible ink. And so we've kind of got our Chekhov's gun right there. But but yeah, Betty Boop interaction, everything with Jessica Rabbit is, yeah, fantastic choice. Lizzie, what's your best scene? I put just the whole final battle scene between all of them, you know, with the the big, like you mentioned it, like the big steamroller. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, he he's flat, he kind of arrives back up and blows air and in, back into his body and, and reveals his true self. And that, like I said, that absolutely terrified me as a child. But watching it now – because I too am admittedly a horror girly. So I I love that scene just because it's so creepy. But then that's just where you're seeing the Christopher Lloyd that we all know and love. Like that's where you actually really see him shine in so many yeah. ways. Is he's it almost seems like he's he's so um muted almost a little bit as Judge Doom. And that's what makes him a little unsettling is the fact that he's just – he he's holding back so much. And you can really feel that in that he brings – that has to be a reality for him as well because his personality is so crazy. So I imagine he probably had way more fun 
in that very last scene. But I just love it. There's so many different things going on. You know, you've got the weasels laughing themselves to death. Mm -hmm. You have the will they, won't they, as far as Jessica Rabbit and Roger get sprayed with the dip. And so many different moving pieces and it's so chaotic. And but I just, I love it. That's a great choice. It is a very tense scene. For me, it's, it's pretty much all humans. It's the judge's first encounter with Eddie and everything about it. Eddie's the other cops there. And we just get this very perfect noir scene with some corny jokes in the middle. But I'm watching it and everyone's playing this ridiculous movie straight. And here's how it ends. Cartoon weasels bust through a wall in their car. <laughs> yes. what, what a fantastic tone shift of straight, straight, noir, seriousness, weasels. Yes. Like the and shave and the haircut. I love that bit. Of yes. Like students can't resist it. They have to, yes. they have to finish. <laughs> and it's this weird high tension thing, but also completely ridiculous with Audrey. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a great moment. Best wardrobe or makeup moment, Jacob. I realize this is very Dolores heavy suddenly. Um, I mentioned the scene earlier when she walks up into her light and just talks about how Eddie was killed or Eddie's brother was killed by a tune. Like, it's just, she's lit well. Her makeup is perfect. The outfit is killer. Her outfits are killer throughout this movie. I don't think she wears the same one twice. So that, but that is my kind of like outfit makeup moment is right there. Although like... You could also easily, and I don't want to take anything away from everybody else because there are so many you could choose from. That's just the first one that popped into my brain. Yeah, she's fantastic. Lizzie? I do love Delore. One thing I've noticed about her is she has this really amazing mouth that she's able to kind of crack this smile without completely smiling. It's very coy. And I, I love that. That's kind of fits perfectly in a noir setting where you can kind of have that sense of humor while still being serious. Um, but mine, uh, my best, I, I went with the low-hanging fruit with Jessica Rabbit's outfit. I mean, I just think it's okay. so, mm-hmm. like, classic. And it's it's stood the test of time in a way that I think it's, it's worth acknowledging. I will say with all the Dolores talk, what stuck out to me is she has a lot of freckles. And I appreciate oh. them not covering it up. Like she, yes. she has a lot of freckles on her face and on her chest, and they don't cover it up. They just let her be, and I, I appreciated them doing that, not, not like going over the top with makeup. Uh, for mine, Jacob mentioned it earlier. I'm a sucker for the short ties. They, <laughs> they look ridiculous. But Eddie and the other cop with their little tiny ties and and their nice cop hats. It's just it brings me into the setting and just mm-hmm. makes me think, okay, these are these are schlubs that are, are working for $50 or whatever it is to pay off bar tabs. Yeah. yeah. All right. Change one thing. Jacob, what are you changing? Um, this is surprisingly moralistic for me. Um, one thing that I could change, and this has nothing to do with anything, is when Eddie hitches a ride to the back of the red car trolley, the kids are smoking. The kids are smoking and they give him some cigarettes. And as he's stepping off the train, he like there's a whole line of dialogue where he says, thanks for giving the, me the cigarettes. And I'm just like, that doesn't need to be there. Like that doesn't, like that doesn't add anything in here. And it like did, we're, 
like did the tobacco companies give you money for the product placement? Did they not? I don't know. But like that was one of the things where I was like, did I really hear that? So I would change that. It is the 40s and everybody smokes, but yeah, we don't need the children. We've already got baby Herman. Yes, exactly. So, <laughs> Which we we can excuse because he's a 50-year-old in a three-year-old. Which we could also talk about for a second because log- a part of my podcast is Logic Copper. You're just like, how does that make sense? So he's 50 years old. Does that mean that when he was drawn as a baby, he, the character he was drawn was 50 years old? Or does that mean that his character is 50 years old? And does that mean if he's 50 years old, A, he's before the invention of animation because that would have been 1890 or right at the dawn of animation, which also would have made him black and white like Betty Boop, but he's color. So don't think about it too hard. It all falls apart. That's true. <laughs> That's Lizzie, all very true. <laughs> your change one thing might have something to do with baby Herman? Yes. I, I uh, Chad and I chatted about it earlier, which is perfect being on the topic of baby Herman. I love this movie so dearly, but I loathe the entire opening sequence. That I can actually wow. feel – my cortisol levels spiking <laughs> when I watch that with the baby where he's just like, let me just see, you know, I'm going to crawl across the burners and I'm going to turn it on with my feet. He's like so desperately trying to get the cookie and Roger is, you know, getting like pinned up with knives and everything. And I, I remember getting stressed out watching that scene as a kid, but now I'm a mom of three and my two youngest are still very young. They're three and two. And so I just, in my mind, I, this is clearly hyperbolic, but I feel like every parent and, you know, like no one leave me hanging here that's listening and pretend <laughs> like you haven't, but it's like every single parent on some level lives with that fear of like, what if I like walk away for like, just to go grab something from my closet and then come right back and my child is like somehow gotten themselves on top of the fridge. It's like this huge fear and so to just watch it in real time even though it's animated it just it stresses me out and so i just just don't want that part in the movie at all yeah cisco i want to say it was cisco it was either cisco or ebert one of them said that was the funniest scene they'd seen in forever that they couldn't stop laughing i i'm more on the lizzie side of it's not necessarily stressing me out but it's not cracking me up either I think baby Herman's kind of problematic in a couple of different scenes. He sticks his hand up a woman's dress and then drools. It's like, eh, I yeah. get it. He's kind of a sex pervert in this, but uh, you can, you can maybe not do that. I, <laughs> right. I'm, I'm going to stick on this moralistic tangent though, because I think we need to revisit the rating for just one minute. Let's talk mm. about this. Our main character is an alcoholic. We have Jessica rabbit whose entire shtick his sex there's swearing there's violence we witnessed two cartoons brutally melted in a vat of dip why is this pg pg again like pg-13 exists make this pg-13 i think it's going to be better appreciated than saying okay here's bugs bunny here's my four or five year old here you go bugs bunny childhood trauma like the 80s is great for this the great we just uh we covered gremlins childhood trauma you talk about santa claus not being real and your dad dying stuck in the chimney in a santa claus outfit this is what we did in the 80s right yes <laughs> well so, uh, speaking of what we did in the 80s though this is also speaks to a, a whole 
dismissive attitude towards animation that existed in the 80s. So that like if it was animated at all, it belonged it belonged to kids. Yeah. So I think that I think that's part of it. Like why is this PG? Well, there are cartoons in it. It's got to be. You know what I mean? It, it can't be anything else. That's true. That's true. Chad, I will say that I tried this about two or three weeks ago to get my oldest, Wilder, who's Belle's age. I tried to get him to watch um, Gremlins. We made it to when the uh, stripes jumps in the pool at the Y. We made it that far. And then he was like, no, no, no. Like watching the water bubble and everything, he was like, turn it off, turn it off, turn it off. We had to watch Elf. It was I taught him this is his first palate cleanser. It's like you need to watch something to have like <laughs> That was a terrifying scene. Yeah. It's very scary. Yeah, I mean they're I think that they're still kind of it's like they're so ugly, they're cute kind of thing when they're when they're evil. But I mean, as he'll be eight in January as a seven year old, like it's very, very scary. So he he made it almost halfway. Maybe saw- well actually probably more than that, maybe halfway. I saw that movie very young and it it imprinted on me. I loved it, but I've run into so many people that saw it when they were seven in the blender scene. That's what they all bring up is the blender scene. And they're like, that messed me up for weeks to months. All right, that's fair. Maybe don't show it to my seven-year-old, but eight. Like (laughs) I've told her, like, you've got one year and it's coming. She's not happy at all. Yes. All right. There are a ton of great quotes in this movie. Jacob, narrow it down to one. Give us your best quote. Uh, I think I think it's got to be Jessica Rabbit's. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. Because that, that is just, I mean, I think that is the iconic quote from this movie, that you say that and everybody knows exactly who you mean and what you're quoting. I think it, may, it was in the 80s, like 87th best movie line ever so yeah yeah wow yeah it's a very iconic line lizzie what's your best quote i went with the same one i just i think i there are some really really good lines in this movie to be sure but i think that is just it's iconic it, it really is it's jessica rabbit will always go down in history and she'll have that line with her to take take with her do you feel like wreck it ralph stole from this movie with uh, just because we're bad guys, we don't have to be uh, bad guys. That's right. That's true. I never thought about it like that. <laughs> but yeah, neither. I think it's quite possible. Yeah, it, it is quite possible that, that he took it from her. I went with an Eddie Valiant quote he, when he is antagonizing the judge. He's like, have you tried Walla Walla? Cucamonga? I hear Cucamonga <laughs> is nice this time of year. Yes. That's a good one, that's too. Yes. Scene. It's the bar scene, isn't it? It's a good one. Yeah, yeah, he's he's just egging on this terrifying character that I don't know that I would mess with very much. Uh, same with that drunk dude in the bar that's just like, yeah, I've seen a rabbit. And then he goes, yes. my invisible friend Harvey. It's like, oh, dude, you're uh, I don't know what the equivalent of human dip is, but it's not going to be good for you. Yeah. yeah, don't. You don't want the smoke. No, no. Well, Jacob. Before we get to our ratings, do you want to remind everyone where we can hear more from you? Sure. My podcast is called Clue Done It. It's available everywhere you find podcasts on your favorite podcatcher. You can also find us on Instagram at Clue Done It Podcast, uh, Facebook as well. And uh, yeah, that's what we're every other week. We're taking a bit of a break for the holidays right now, but go back and visit the past catalog. It's fun. It is fun. I enjoyed your iZombie episode. That's- Thank you. I- 
my wife and I were big fans of the show. So it was a great show. Liv Moore is a ridiculous character, but I, you guys hit the culinary point of view. It's like, oh right? My goodness, you're so right <laughs> like, I am watching a cooking show in the middle of this. All right. So now we're going to get to our ratings and recommendations from a zero to five star scale, half star increments. Jacob, what are you giving Who Framed Roger Rabbit? It's five all the way. Five Excellent. all the way. Yeah. I think that's pretty clear from, <laughs> I don't think anybody's surprised yeah. by that. Excellent. Lizzie, what's your you know, Same for me. It's five stars. I think for me, it's, is it a good movie? Will I watch it again? Did I enjoy it? Would I recommend it? And like, yes, is all across the board. Like there's very, very little that I can actually find fault in within this movie. It's just, I think it's, it's such a good time. It's clever. It's, it's a nearly perfect film. Wow. Okay. All right. I'm in the awkward position because I'm going to go with four stars. I, I do That's think respectable. it's still yeah, <laughs> so good. Yeah. Be, I, right. Yeah. It's got all my favorite cartoon characters and I think it is a legit banger of a noir movie. I had fun throughout, but here's where it becomes four and not five. I enjoyed the human interaction scenes much more than I enjoyed when the cartoons were on. Hmm. And I think for me, that's the issue. Oh, I almost wish this was two different films, one animated and one noir. And that completely ruins the film. And this is why I'm not in the film industry. (laughs) (laughs) But that's, that's where I'm at. So Lizzie, do you want to help us pick a film for next time? Yes. All right. So sometimes it's best to go back to the originals. And this short list has titles that we will all recognize more from today. But whether we know it or not, they're actually remakes. So Chad, we've got option one, The Lady Killers from 1955. Five oddball criminals planning a bank robbery and a cul-de-sac from an octogenarian under the pretext that they are all actually classical musicians. Option number two, Father of the Bride from 1950. The father of a young woman deals with the emotional pain of getting her married along with the financial and organizational trouble of arranging a wedding. And option number three, The Parent Trap from 1961. Teenage twin sisters swap places and scheme to to reunite their divorced parents. Oh, that's really tempting, but we spent so much time talking about crime. I want more. So I'm going <laughs> Lady Killers, nice. 1955, more crime. Jacob, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a blast. What a, what a fun episode to do. Thank you so much for having me. I agree. This has been a blast. It's been a ton of fun. And I, I can't wait to hear you talk about the Lady Killers because that's also a fun one too. Yeah. yeah. I can't wait. I'm on that episode next week. So I'm looking forward to it. Thank you, Lizzie. Thank you, all the lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us because we want to hear from you. Please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you get them. This really helps get our show recognized, get it out there to the listeners. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. You won't see our faces, but you'll still hear our voices. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow us at Instagram and Twitter at movie underscore retro. You can email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. And remember, producing and providing this podcast is fun, but it is not free. 
So we invite you to go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash retromovieroundtable. Any contribution is really, really appreciated. Helps to make the show better for you, the listeners. So as always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Lizzie? Okay, okay. Which one of you Maroons has ever played basketball?